Mr. Levin, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Excellent to be here. You know, every semester I show my students Rikers in American jail. I think it gives such a good glimpse into the uh, criminal justice system in this country, into the penal system in this country. What was it like making that documentary? Well, um, it was very moving. I mean, in that um, I had been to Rikers back in the 70s. Uh, and uh, obviously, it's not a place <laughs> that you want to go. Uh, and conditions were pretty bad. But uh, hearing the testimony uh, of the characters that are in that film was just har harrowing. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the movement to close Rikers uh, had been picking up momentum. The, I think the film added to that momentum, and yet Rikers is still here. Uh, and it's very, very dispiriting. Um, I mean, I, you know, obviously there are stories like the Khalif Browder story and others um, that have moved people. And I mean, just to take you back a, a moment, you know, I've often been asked since I've done quite a number of films in prisons and jails, and um, I'm about to go visit San Quentin in a week or two. Um, you know, why? And I've often wondered myself, why? But when I was a teenager, uh, one of my good friends, very close friends, was found hung in the Dade County Jail. Now, this is in uh, January of 1970. And I was just a teenager, and obviously that was a shocking and tragic moment and it was listed as a suicide uh, but knowing my friend Gordon uh, the wise ass he was and the more I've learned over the years and heard stories including the stories that are in Rikers the more I've wondered you know was that really a suicide you know uh, or was it something else and uh, I think that's haunted me and has led me back um, obviously the DC jail is where I, I did the film Slam, which is going to be re-released uh, this winter. Um, I originally tried to do it in Rikers, uh, but that was uh, at the end of the Giuliani administration. So uh, that that proved to be too difficult. Um, but yeah, the, the testimony of, of those characters and the idea that you can end up in this kind of no man's land where you're not convicted, uh, you're not acquitted, and yet you're living in hell um, and treated less than human is frightening. Uh, and I think those characters, you know, it's often, just, I think we worried at the beginning that, wow, you know, these are just talking heads um, telling their story. Uh, testifying, really. And uh, I remember Bill Moyers saying the most powerful special effect in all filmmaking and television is the human face. Uh, and that's often discounted. Uh, but I think, you know, going back to your question, I think the faces of these people, the voices of these people were so real, so powerful in the way they were able to articulate what it was like uh, that it was actually ended up 
and the fact that you're even showing it to your students, it ended up more powerful than if we had just gone in in, in a more conventional sense and uh, and shot this is this cell block, this is that cell block. Um, so um, that's kind of, uh, I was doubtful, but it's great to hear that you're using it, you know, and that it's alive today. You know, folks like me teach students that the prison system here in the U.S. is supposed to rehabilitate, right? And when I show this movie to my class prior to starting the movie, I tell them all that there will be moments that are difficult to get through. And if you're offended by some of the things that you see, that's okay. And, you know, things of that nature. What does that movie show about rehabilitation? It shows we've abandoned it. Uh, I mean, that's what's bringing me to San Quentin is uh, Governor Newsom uh, has kind of stated that he wants to turn uh, San Quentin, which is a notorious uh, high security prison that has the California death row over, I think, 300 uh, inmates on death row, um, into a new rehabilitation model based on the kind of Scandinavian model of uh, treating um, inmates uh, as human beings, not less than, uh, and in restoring this idea that rehabilitation is not just a moral force of, of, of helping people and of, of, of having them regain their humanity and the future, but it actually makes more economic sense. Uh, that we have, uh, you know, productive citizens instead of paying thousands of dollars a year to keep people caged up, many way beyond their kind of aging out of criminality. Uh, so that, that, I mean, whether he can pull it off uh, is a whole other question, and that would be the documentary. You know, this is kind of a... I mean, as I say, there are, you know, there are models, not in this country, but in uh, the Scandinavian countries that he's gone to, uh, and trying to change the institutional thinking that we've become so accustomed to, that we've kind of accepted, you can't change it. It's just the way it is. There is no such thing as rehabilitation. Uh, it's really just punishment and warehousing. Uh, and kind of a business model of using a human, uh, you know, kind of uh, as a commodity that have to be caged uh, and worked in certain places. So, I mean, originally, when I went out there in the 70s, um, there was some programming, and I'm sure there is now that uh, Liza Jesse Peterson wrote a book about um, teaching adolescents out on Riker Island. Uh, the role that Sonia Sohn played in SLAM was kind of modeled on that kind of character of somebody who is willing to go to Rikers Island, they're willing to go into a jail and try to talk to young men, um, you know, and, and try to kind of somehow reach them that rehabilitation isn't just some, you know, do good idea or, okay, you're going to lose your status, you're going to lose your cool, you're going to lose your street cred. Uh, no, you're going to lose your life the way you're going, and you're going to lose everything. Uh, and uh, being an intelligent, involved uh, human being and citizen 
that can make a difference uh, is a choice that you better not just dismiss as some like do good or go to church. Uh, it's hard to crack through, as I'm sure you know, you're well aware. Um, so I, I think how to how to reintroduce the idea of rehabilitation uh, as something that is a worthwhile goal for us as a society for those people who have made mistakes um, is a great challenge. And again, that's I'm, I'm curious to see how Newsom is going to try to navigate because it's not just the uh, detainees, the inmates, the prisoners, whatever you want to call them. Um, it's the guards. It's the it's the correctional institution. It's the administration. Uh, it's all one. Uh, and changing the psychology of that is an uh, enormous undertaking. Um, so um, I'll let you know in a few weeks, I'll have a better idea, at least of where they're starting. You mentioned SLAM a few times and see so you have the poster there behind you. What were you hoping to convey in making that movie? Well, I think um, that creativity the creative mind is the ultimate escape from being imprisoned. Obviously we think of prison or jail as physical, but we all know you can be imprisoned in many ways and you can be in boxes and cells, uh, many psychological ways. So the idea was that the young pot dealer who gets thrown in to the DC jail the belly of the beast uses his creativity, uses his words, uses his ability to, in a sense, defend himself and immobilize those forces of violence in a way um, that few believed was possible. Uh, and so that creativity, being a creative thinker, uh, is the key to freedom. What drew you to make Brick City? Well, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which borders on Newark. Uh, so I grew up before I was a teenager and moved to the suburbs of, of Jersey. I grew up in a, a working class community uh, that was uh, blue collar, much like Newark. Um, and uh, so, and when the riots happened in Newark, I was a teenager uh, and my parents were uh, very involved in the civil rights movement and involved in Ken Gibson, who became the first black mayor of a major uh, US city. Um, so I was always interested in Newark. And then when Cory Booker, um, you know, became mayor, he was obviously a very charismatic guy uh, and this idea of, you know, revitalizing a city, uh, a city that I knew, uh, a city that, I, you know, even when I played basketball as a high school basketball player in the suburbs, you know, it was Newark. It was going up against Newark. It was going up against the best in Newark. You know, uh, Newark still had a certain street cachet, you know, when, when I came of age. Obviously, it had the literary, you know, Philip Roth came out of Newark. There was a big Jewish community in Newark. Um, that migrated to the suburbs where I eventually was a teenager. So all those things drew me to, can, can, can you really revitalize a city like this? It had its heyday. Can you bring it back? 
Uh, and, you know, so much of politics is focused on Washington uh, and, you know, where we just get one dysfunctional report after another today is a great example. You know, the government's about to shut down. Nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. Um, and uh, and senators and governors, again, uh, it's, uh, it's hard to see the policy in effect. Mayors, the local politics, you can see it. You know, if there's a snowstorm and the schools are closed and the, and the roads have to be cleaned and electricity goes down, all of that you can see. So uh, it's a much realer way to try to look at the interface of politics and people and real people's lives and how that works. Uh, and that has intrigued me, you know, since boyhood, probably. Um, so all that came together. And then finally, in, in Cory Booker, you found um, a, uh, a man who, who wasn't afraid of, I mean, he embraced the camera. Okay, you could say he, and he, he himself joked, I'm a media whore. You know, he would joke uh, at, that he loved media, he loved movies, he loved books. He was a thinker. Um, he'd gone to Stanford. He was an athlete also. Uh, so there were many touching points we had. Uh, and he was willing to let cameras in places that I think very, very few elected officials would ever. I mean, in Brick City, I can't remember if it's season one or two, but we were in his office with his inner team when one of his key cabinet members was indicted by the federal government. I mean, you know, who would let you in? at such a moment like that. And then, of course, Ross Baraka, who's mayor now, was the principal of uh, Central High School at that point. Uh, and, you know, when some of the shootings happened, uh, you know, he had that assembly that went viral when, you know, he made that speech, this is not normal. So there was a cast of characters in Newark that was uh, very attractive. There was access that you couldn't get anywhere. And again, it wasn't, I didn't grow up there, but I grew up around there. So I felt it was like home base. You know, so much of your work, whether it's Newark, whether it's Slam, whether it's the Rikers documentary, others, obviously, that I want to talk about, focuses on marginalized people. Why do you think that is? Is that something in your past, something that just kind of draws an interest? What is it? Well, when I made Slam, I once went down to, um, I don't know if it was Howard, uh, but it was a, one of the of Black colleges uh, outside D.C., and um, the film showed and I came on stage uh, afterwards to do the Q&A and there was a gasp in the audience. They were like, that's Mark Levin. I think they expected to see a young black, you know, director instead of a, at that time, middle-aged, you know, Jewish guy from New York. Um, so that question has been with me and, and I made two films after that where in a sense I tried to answer it. I made a film, White Boys. Uh, and then I made a film, Brooklyn Babylon with the Roots, uh, white boys about white and their fascination with black hip hop uh, and uh, Brooklyn Babylon, uh, an interracial love story, of, you know, a, a young black uh, man and a Orthodox Jewish woman uh, in Brooklyn, which is where my family's from. So I think that um, it's from my upbringing. Uh, my parents really uh, were activists. I was at the March on Washington as a kid. My parents brought 
myself and two of my sisters uh, to that um, when Martin Luther King made his I Have a Dream speech. My parents were labor organizers. So I think they inculcated me uh, and my sisters in both uh, that that's part of uh, our calling. Uh, my grandfather used to have a, a funny saying how he summed it up. He was he, he became very involved in the reconstruction, the Jewish reconstruction movement. Um, and uh, he had this saying, you know, what does God mean? And he says, take the first level G, take the second level and double it G-O-O -O, and take the last letter D and it's go do good. Uh, so I think it was a, you know, family. And then I think my own roots in Elizabeth, um, because when I got to suburbia as a teenager, uh, at first I did feel a little out of place, uh, not only as a, a Jew in a kind of wasp community, but, um, you know, as kind of a more working class, what would be called back then greasers you know, uh, of just more of, of, of that than the country club community that I moved into. But I think that that part of just my makeup of being on the street as a kid, you know, playing on the street, you know, and, and just getting in kind of mischief uh, the way uh, I did when I grew up and, and my sister is closest to me, who both of us have stayed in the city. I think there was an urban part of just my personality and certainly basketball which became my passion as a teenager uh led me uh my the co-captain of, of my high school team with me was black and he led me into in the 60s uh, into black culture and black nationalism and everything that was happening he was my co-captain he was my buddy uh and that was an eye over so i think all of those things but it was never it was never a plan um you know in other words i never felt I was setting out on a mission, I, I just kind of found myself organically attracted in these directions, in these relationships, and it just kind of happened naturally. You mentioned basketball a few times. You made I Promise, the subject of which was LeBron James. You made Anything is Possible, terrific movie on Showtime uh, about Kevin Garnett. What drew you to those projects? Well, as I said, you know, when I was... Uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, that I don't know that I've ever been as single-minded about anything as I was when I got, you know, addicted to basketball, became a basketball player, eventually a high school player. Um, so that's a starting point. Uh, and of course, I've been a fan ever since, a, a, a you know, dispirited fan in that I live only blocks from Madison Square Garden. And I from my youth, remember the glory days of the Knicks championships in um, 1970, 69-70 uh, series and 73. Um, so, you know, I love basketball. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of buy into, there's a book out now, uh, David Holbrook's book um, uh, on basketball uh, as, uh, you know, uh, basketball, how basketball can save the world. I think it's the title of it. Uh, and I kind of buy into a little of, I mean, you know, the sports cliche that sports teaches you all these values of sacrifice, discipline, teamwork, et cetera. 
I buy that, and, and and I do buy that basketball has been kind of this progressive, even if we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the WNBA is of, of the sports, the major sports out there, it's been the more progressive force uh, in, in um, involving itself and speaking out on issues of social justice, et cetera. So I think all those things, when I met LeBron, uh, I, you know, I'd followed LeBron's career since he was in high school uh, in Akron. Uh, but I told him, honestly, I said, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. You know, I've rooted against you my whole life, you know, as a Knicks fan. Uh, and uh, uh, but now what he was doing in Akron with the I Promise School and the LeBron James Foundation, uh, I was moved and impressed that uh, you know, uh, obviously a lot of athletes give back, but the scale he was attacking this at was monumental. Uh, in fact, as I learned, uh, the I Promise School originally, when he said I wanted to start a school in Akron, uh, he was advised to do a private academy, as some other stars have done, uh, because that you control, you're not dealing with the Board of Education, you're not dealing with labor you know, unions, et cetera. You can do what you want. And he said, no, no, I went to public school. So then they said, do a charter school. And he said, no, no, no. I went to a regular public elementary school and that's what I want to set up. So and on top of that, he wanted to do it for the bottom 25% of the kids who were tested in second grade. Most, you know, when they do that test and the bottom 25% are projected to be the dropouts, the ones that, you know, are on the street, enter gangs, et cetera. So that is such an ambitious undertaking uh, that I, I was just amazed and uh, I still am. I'm, I'm in talks with them about, you know, returning at some point because they've expanded the canvas. The school's expanded now all the way to ninth grade and following some of the kids, obviously, that we uh, followed back uh, five, six years ago. Um, Kevin Garnett now, and, and, and so I have tremendous respect for LeBron. Uh, both on the court and off. Kevin, I met um, at a Super Bowl party uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, we just hit it off. Now, he is uh, such an exuberant character. I mean, he's probably one of the most intense athletes ever, uh, intense competitors. Uh, and uh, that intensity is in his life uh, outside the court. And he and I hit it off because I just didn't realize that his year in Chicago, which obviously in the film, you know, is a critical part of that film, um, when he came from South Carolina for his uh, senior year uh, in high school in Chicago, what a life changer that was to, because he was like a country boy that came to the city and he didn't know anything about the vice lords and the gangster disciples and the, you know, Chicago, like LA, one of the, the key gangs, you know, scenes. And that high school that he went to was right in the middle of all of it. Uh, so when he met me, he was like, you made gang war. You did Mr. Untouchable. It was like a whole thing. You, you did Chicago land. Uh, you know, the families behind the GDs, you know, it was, he was just questioning me. And I was just amazed by his appetite and his intellect. Cause he never went to college. He was the, the first of his generation, you know, go right to the pros. Um, so we just hit it off. And, uh, out of that came, uh, 
KG anything is possible, but also uh, I work closely with his company, Content Cartel, now as they're expanding into a lot of other stuff. I wonder what making inside the FBI taught you about the FBI. Uh, well, that's uh, that might be a subject for another show. Uh, <laughs> that was an amazing experience because I was inside the FBI, of course. I didn't fully realize it and it wasn't the focus, but of course, when all this was happening, all this meaning, um, you know, them leaking information to Trump and the Hillary, you know, emails and the whole thing. I was at that point, you know, because I knew Dick Wolf and had a relationship with him. Um, my focus then was, you know, on kind of, humanizing who are special agents, what's the FBI really about. Uh, but that was a period, if you remember 2015, 2016, where ISIS was out of control. It was, uh, you know, there was San Bernardino, there was Orlando, there was Paris, there was Brussels. Uh, it was just one, there was a, a bomb right here in Chelsea, uh, two blocks, you know, in a dumpster, uh, you know, right around from where I live and from my studio. So, to have access to the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, Carlos um, Hernandez, who was the head of uh, counterterrorism to form a friendship. And now these were friendships across, as I made clear to them, and I'm sure that they discussed it in their own way. You know, when I was a, a teenager in the 60s, you know, I was kill the FBI, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is the enemy. Uh, and 9-11 uh, changed a lot, obviously. Uh, and here we were working together. And I'm sure a lot of the people I worked with, you know, were, were Trump supporters and conservatives politically. But we struck up a, a friendship. And, uh, you know, Comey, uh, I mean, it's funny uh, because he and Dick Wolf, obviously, that's how it all happened. You know, they had a chemistry and, and Comey decided to give us unprecedented access for a year um, because he was convinced that, you know, the FBI needed a new generation of people coming in and needed a more diverse uh, group of men and women. Uh, and when I first met Comey up at West Point in uh, 2015, uh, that fall, um, I remember saying to Ann Began, who was the head of a of uh, media relations uh, who we worked so closely with, he'd be a great Republican nominee. Uh, now I was with Ann Began um, a year and a half later. In fact, it was only months after we premiered the, the, uh, the series uh, and, and with Comey in Washington at the New Zine that we were down at um, Quantico, you know, which is the training room. Uh, and we were driving back and it came on the radio that Trump had just fired Comey. And Ann broke down in the car. Uh, I had to pull off to the side of the road. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, on one level, on a personal level, I, kind of went into a world that for many years I probably would have seen on the other side of everything I stood for. In fact, my parents were investigated by the FBI. I, in fact, I got their file. Um, 
and found common ground with some of the people I became friends with. And of course, as I said, 9-11 changed everything and the counterterrorism mission and the whole idea of not just being a law enforcement uh, operation, but being an intelligence operation in a world where the threats are coming from all over and how do you defuse them, stop them, et cetera, instead of just waiting after a crime happens and going after. So the whole FBI changed and kind of, I was in the middle of that and I met a lot of good people. At the same time, you know, I saw how these institutions work uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's how, how how hard it is when we were talking about like prison the prison industrial conflict how hard it is to change institutional thinking and bureaucracy you know the so-called deep state you know just how difficult it is um for a guy like comey i mean look what happened to him now look he had his faults and he, there was a self-righteousness you know about him and still he was probably you know kind of the most open-minded and intellectually uh facile director of the FBI we've ever had. Uh, and, uh, you know, to see how he got lost in the politics of the moment. I was in the Carlos's office when he made the speech on July 3rd about Hillary Clinton, which was, uh, I remember Carlos looking at me. Now, I knew Carlos didn't like the Clintons, but he just looked at me and it was like, that was a mistake. That was a mistake, meaning the FBI publicly involving itself in the whole political process, which then, you know, months later, only a week and a half before the election. Um, and I interviewed Comey um, in December before he went public. It was almost like a dress rehearsal for, you know, kind of, uh, and of course, asked him with a room full of lawyers in the room, um, you know, was it a mistake? Uh, what you did in July, and then, of course, what you did uh, right for the election, 10 days before the election. Um, so it was sobering. Uh, and uh, I often think about because I'm working on a film right now that so involves the FBI's role back in the 80s and the 90s. I'm doing a film called April 19th for HBO that will be on this spring. Uh, that looks at the evolution of political violence through the retelling the lens of the Oklahoma City bombing story. April 19th is the date of the Oklahoma City bombing. It's the date of the Waco tragedy. It's Patriot's Day, the day the first shot in the Revolutionary War was uh, fired in Concord, Lexington. So in the Patriot movement, the far-right Patriot movement, that date has tremendous significance. And the FBI, of course, has got, you know, unfortunately, Waco, Ruby Ridge, uh, and the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, obviously McVeigh and Nichols and Michael Fortier, who turned government witnesses, his wife, Lori. Uh, but, you know, there's always been the questions, unanswered questions, John Doe number two, others unknown, prior knowledge, et cetera. So I've kind of come full circle and I'm, I'm dealing with the other side of the FBI right now. Mr. Levin. I really appreciate your time. You're discussing with me your work, which is obviously so interesting, so compelling, uh, stands the test of time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Dimitri. Thank you very much.